All right. Come on in and grab a seat. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. If you're visiting with us, this isn't the, the official gathering of Parkway. That's at 1030. This is something we do to uh, uh, just learn more theology before that. So you get some theology, then you get some more theology in the sermon. We love theology. So let me pray, and then we will talk about the Council of Nicaea and uh, Nicene Orthodoxy. And so I'm going to start off by praying to our Trinitarian God. So let's pray. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you're great. We confess that there is only one God, and yet this one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So would you help us know you rightly? Would you help us love you more? We confess that in this lesson we're dealing with a divine mystery. Would you keep us from trying to get rid of the mystery? At the end of the day, you as God are wholly other, and you are not like creation. And so help us from thinking of you that way. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Council of Nicaea. If you are new or just joining us, what we've been doing this, uh, this semester, and we're actually going to do it all year, is walking through church history. So we talked about the early church under Roman domination. We talked about the conversion of Constantine. We talked about some early church heretics and these kind of things. Today, we're going to deal with what is perhaps the most important council in all of church history. Now, it's not the first in church history. We actually have a council before that in the book of Acts, the council there in Jerusalem. And when I say it's the most important, I don't mean that the councils that come after it are less important. They're still going to be dealing with the deity of Christ. They're still going to be dealing with the Trinity. The reason I say this one's the most important is because had the church gotten this one wrong, we wouldn't have gotten any of the other ones right. Had the church failed at this council, the gates of Hades probably would have overcome the church, and that we would not be Christians today. We would have just been Arians that eventually would have fizzled out or something. But because God is sovereign over his church, he protects his church from grave error, and we see that today uh, as we study the Council of Nicaea. Now, we're going to go over this lesson, and then we're going to talk about uh, Orthodox Trinitarianism. Before we do, I want to give you a few terms that sometimes people throw around, and they don't necessarily know what they mean. First, the term Orthodox or Orthodoxy. Okay, you'll hear us use that term a lot. That simply means that you're right, okay? Orthodox, orthos in Greek means right, doxa is worship, orthodoxy is correct or right worship. That's what that term means. So if we ever, you ever hear us at Parkway say, we're orthodox, the orthodox faith, orthodoxy, we're meaning correct doctrine. That's what we're meaning, okay? Another term that gets thrown around sometimes is the term heresy. Now, let me be very clear. All heresy is false teaching, not all false teaching is heresy, okay? Heresy, someone who's an actual heretic, that's not actually, that's not two words you put together. An actual heretic is somebody who's so far off they're not even a Christian. They do not belong to Christ. Their doctrine is so far off they're worshiping a different God, and that is what a heretic is. That's not the same as all false teaching, okay? All false teaching is sin, but you can be off in something small, I mean, there are times in my life where I've, had, I've taught something that's false, but that's different than me being a persistent heretic or something like that. So don't confuse those terms. Uh, we all, to some degree, have false teaching in our lives. We'll get to heaven, and I think God will be like, ah, Zach, you're about 60% right, or whatever it is. But that's different than actual heresy. Heresy is where you're denying one of these major tenets of the faith, and it usually relates to who God is, because that's the most important thing. So here are the questions we're trying to answer today. The Council of Nicaea is going to deal with the most important issue in theology, and it's this, who is God, okay? That's really important. Sometimes people will say, the doctrine of the Trinity doesn't seem very practical. What is more practical than worshiping the right God? It's very important, very practical. There's your practicality, okay? Here's the issue that's going on. Knowing that there is one and only one God, how should we think of Christ? That's the issue. Knowing that there's one and only one God, how should we think of Christ, okay? When we say Jesus is the Son of God, do not think of that like how a human has a son. I have a son, he's five, 
Okay, his name is Judah. But when I'm standing next to him, guess how many humans there are? Two. When we say Jesus is the Son of God, uh uh-oh, you only have one God, so you can't follow that analogy out. So already we're having to deal with these Trinitarian concepts even before the Council of Nicaea. So let's get into the good stuff. You guys ready? You sound very excited. I know several, yeah, there it is, okay. Council of Nicaea, get it tattooed. Okay, let's talk about the bad guy, Arius, okay? Who is Arius? First of all, there's the picture there. Jeff had this picture in his notes last week. I thought it was excellent. He is very much of a dweeb in this picture, okay? This is why we tried to find the ugliest one we could find of him because he's the bad guy, you know? Sometimes you should judge a book by its cover. He was an elder in Alexandria, and he believed that the father was greater than the son, who in turn was greater than the spirit, like Origen had. We talked about Origen but didn't think that the Son or the Spirit could then be God because there's only one God. So with Origen, he would say that there's only one God, but somehow the Son is less and subordinate to, and somehow the Spirit is less and subordinate to. And that is incorrect, by the way. So let me say it clearer for you. The members of the Trinity do not stand in a vertical relationship to each other. They stand in a horizontal relationship to each other. Okay. Arius agreed with Origen by saying that the Son and the Spirit are indeed less than the Father, but because there's only one God, they can't be associated with that one God at all. They have to just be creatures. Okay? If all this sounds, ugh, it should sound gross. This guy's a heretic. When we say Arius, everyone says, boo. Okay? That's, we, we did that with Pelagius. We'll also do that with Arius at some point. Here is what Arius taught, just to make it as clear as possible. He thought that the Word, meaning the Son, was the first thing that God created, but was still just a creature, okay? Modern-day Mormons, modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses are Aryan. They hold this view. If you draw creator up top on the board like this that I actually spelled correctly this time, and you draw a hard line. Look how hard that line is. It goes all the way across the board. There's an infinite gap between these things. And you draw creation below that, and you were to ask Arius, where does the sun go? Because it can only be one or the other. Okay? These, everything that exists falls into one of two categories, creator or creation. If you were to ask Arius, where does the Son of God go? He would say down here. Okay? He would say creation. And he's talking about his deity. He's not talking about his humanity. His humanity was created. He's talking about his deity, his eternality. Okay? He would, Arius would say he is not eternal, that he is a creature just like anything else. A modern-day Jehovah's Witness holds this, that God created the Word, created the Son, and then he's the best creation. He's like, you're just like a six and he's like a 32, but he's still just a creature. Here's what uh, uh, Arius is famous for saying. He has a famous phrase, there was when he was not, talking about the son. Arius would say there was when he was not. He doesn't say there was a time when he was not because there's no time yet, but he's trying to say there was, you have the father and no son at some point, if you even want to use temporal language. There was when he was not. Now listen to this quote from Arius. It it should make you feel gross on the inside. The son was not always. For whereas all things were made out of nothing and all existing creatures and works were made, so the word of God himself was made out of nothing. And once he was not, there's the phrase, and he was not before his origination, but he, as others, had an origin in creation. Ugh! Just having these words on my notes on this music stand makes me feel like it's going to burn a hole in the music stand, okay? This is evil. This is heresy. He is saying Jesus, no matter how great he is, is still just a creature. He is made ek nihilo, just like everything else that he has made out of nothing, okay? 
He believed, and here's a term that will become important later on for this debate. Okay, we'll talk about the actual council in a second, but this is a term that will come, become important in the debate here. He believed that the sun is, look at this phrase, homoi usios. Usia in Greek means being or substance. Homoi means like. So notice what he's saying. He's saying the son is not God. The son is not the same substance as the father. The son is like God. The son is of a similar substance to the father, but not the same thing. There is no way, by the way, if you're Arian, where you don't fall into polytheism. There's no way if you're Arian that you don't fall into polytheism. As soon as you say the son is a different substance, a different being than the father, you have fallen into Arianism and also by default polytheism. Okay? Now, how did Arius prove his points? Was he just doing worldly philosophy? No, he was doing what every heretic does, which is appealing to Scripture. This is why at Parkway we're so big on doctrine. You can't just say, I believe the Bible. You know who else says that? Arius. Okay? Every heretic appeals to the Bible. That's not good enough. You have to say what the Bible means. That's why creeds and statements of faith are important. Everybody says they believe the Bible. What do you believe the Bible actually teaches? That's, that's head and shoulders apart. The devil quotes scripture to Jesus in the wilderness. Just quoting scripture out of context is not worth it, okay? Rather, you have to know what the Bible actually means. Here are some evidences that Arius gives for why he thinks the son is created. First of all, his biggest one, he spends the most time here. In Proverbs 8, 2, it says that God made wisdom, and 1 Corinthians calls Jesus wisdom, okay? So what he says is, in Proverbs 8, God clearly creates wisdom. 1 Corinthians, it says that uh, Jesus became wisdom for us, therefore it means that Jesus must be created. That's his first argument. He often confused passages talking about Jesus and his humanity with Jesus' eternal deity. For example, when Jesus says that the Father is greater than I, Arius would say, see, Zach? He's, I mean, he didn't say that to me. I'm not 2,000 years old. But he, he would say, see, he says it right here. The Father is greater than I. And the church has to say, well, wait, what, do you, what is the, his point in saying that? His point is not talking about how he's somehow less in his deity than the Father. He's talking about his humanity. He, as the Christ, the God-man, must submit and must follow out this thing, but that's different than talking about his eternal deity. He said that, this is Arius, because Jesus says he doesn't know when he's returning, that must be related to his deity. The church responded by stating that is only about his humanity. So you know that passage where Jesus says, nobody knows when I'm coming back, not the angels, not even the son, and yet every like few years there's some guy that's like, I figured it out, Right? And they put up a billboard and they're like, it's going to be May 24th, 2023. And you're like, if, if the sun doesn't know and the angels don't know, you, Harold Camping or whoever, also doesn't know. Okay? What does Jesus mean in that passage though? Is he talking about his deity? He is not. His opponents don't know he's God. He's just going along with their conversation. He's saying, listen, nobody knows. That's his point. Obviously, he knows in his deity, he knows everything is God. If Jesus doesn't know when he's coming back in his deity, he is not God and you are Arian, period. End of sentence, okay? He obviously knows when he's coming back. In the book of Revelation, he says, I'm coming soon, which means he has to know when that is or else he couldn't even say that. It could be a really long time, which apparently is also what soon means because it's been 2,000 years. But you get my point. What Arius is doing is he's appealing to passages where Jesus, as the God-man, is talking. He's only one person, but there are certain things when he talks that you see them uh, that, it, that it's helpful to think in conceptual schemes of saying, is this talking about his deity or his humanity? And Arius is confusing the two categories. He, he's kind of mixing the two natures, and he comes up with that. 
In uh, 1 Corinthians, Arius explicitly appeals to this, where it says that God is the head of Christ. He said that that meant that the Son is somehow less than the Father. We'll talk about what that actually means when we get into that passage in 1 Corinthians. Arius also does this. He explicitly appeals to our common conception of a human son and a father. What he'll say is this. We, God has written his Bible so humans can understand, and when we as humans think of a son and a father, the first thing that we think about is how the Son was created. The first thing that we think about is how the son is less than the father. And Athanasius has to be like, listen, are you taking stupid pills? That's not how we do theology. We never look at humanity and then say, oh, God must be like this. That is backwards, okay? We understand human relations by looking at God, not the other way around. So Arius will appeal to several of these different things and it has to be shot down. Arius was opposed by his own bishop, a guy named Alexander from Alexandria. How convenient is that? If you're Alexander from Alexandria... That's awesome, okay? You don't even have to, people people will never forget who you are or where you're from. They'll always remember. In fact, it was Alexander's sermon entitled The Great Mystery of the Trinity and Unity in 318, which infuriated Arius into denying the deity of the Son. Now, why is Arius afraid to say that Jesus is the same substance as the Father? Here's why. Again, remember, heretics have quote-unquote good intentions. Heretics are trying to follow what they think is, is true, Most people don't wake up and say, I think I'm going to be a heretic. They think what they're doing is right. Arius is concerned that if he allows a plurality of persons within the Godhead, that it will destroy God's unity and it will destroy God's simplicity. That's his concern. His concern is he doesn't want to fall into modalism. He doesn't want to fall into this error that taught that God was only not just one God, one, one being, but one person. You have the Father, and he just kind of does this cool change act, and he's the Son, And then he does this cool magic trick and he's the spirit, but there's only one person. Arius is trying to avoid that, and rightfully so. Modalism, Sabellianism is heresy. If you want to know what those terms mean, listen to Jeff's uh, lecture on those uh, uh, that's online. But he's trying to protect from that error. And so what he does is he ends up denying something else that the Bible says. This is constantly what people do. The Bible will give us two things and it wants us to hold them in tension. There's one God, three persons. Don't try to figure it out. Don't deny either. Okay? God is sovereign, yet he will still hold you responsible for what you do. Hold them in tension. Do not try to get rid of one or the other. The Bible will make you hold these things as a paradox. And what Arius wants to do, as most heretics do, they try to get rid of the mystery of God. Don't ever get rid of the mystery of God. We can, uh, we can apprehend him, but we cannot comprehend him. He is beyond knowing, but we can know things about him that are true. I can say God is one, there's only one God, and that's a true statement, even though I don't know everything about the infinite depths of God. Now let's look at the good guy. So I picked a really bad picture of Arius. Look at this Gandalf, kind of like a stately figure of Athanasius the Great, okay? I mean, he even has like this Leonidas battle scar across his eye or something. He looks awesome. There to the right, you can see in Greek, it's got the first part of his name, it cuts off, and then underneath it, you've got Megos the Great, Athanasius the Great, Okay? He is going to be the good guy. His view was that Jesus is homo usios. Homo means same, and usia, again, means being or, uh, or substance or uh, nature. It actually changes meanings over time, but officially the church comes down on a meaning. That he's the same substance as the Father. So he would say that the Son goes here, creator. That there's only two things that exist. There's creator and creation. Here's what's in the creator category, Father, Son, and Spirit. Here's what's in the creation category, everything else, okay? Everything else. So Athanasius is the good guy. He held that Jesus is co-equal, that the Father is not above the Son in any way. 
Co-substantial, Jesus is fully and truly God. And co-eternal, Jesus is just as eternal as the Father is. You'll oftentimes have early church fathers referring to this term, correlativity. It's a fancy term. What does that mean? If the Son is not eternal, then the Father is not eternally Father. For him to be Father, he has to be the Father of someone. And so what the early church is trying to say is, listen, when you deny the deity of the Son, guess what else you deny? The deity of the Father. He can't be Father without being Father of the Son. Now, I want to spend a ton of time on Athanasius because he is fascinating, he's interesting, he has this crazy life, but I can't because next week our very own Jared Lawson is going to teach an entire lesson on Athanasius. He will be the first of a series of what we're calling major players in church history. So we'll have a whole lesson on Athanasius next week, so I, I have to skip over that for now, but come back, Jared's going to deal more with that topic. Let's talk about the council itself, okay? <clears throat> it was called by Constantine in the early summer of 325. Here we have this famous photo. I'm kidding, it's not a photo. This painting from way later on of the Council of Nicaea, it would not have looked anything like this, but this is a famous painting of it, so I figured that you could, uh, you could have that, you know, because we all know that people in the 300s are dressing like they're in the 1400s in Europe. It was called by Constantine in the early summer of 325, now, originally, Constantine didn't want to have to call a council of bishops to figure out this Arian controversy. He just wanted people to get along, right? He, he, we talked about how Constantine probably wasn't really converted, probably wasn't really regenerate, and so he's more concerned with saving his fracturing empire, and so he originally tries to deal with the controversy by just writing letters to the different parties, but to no avail. So he has to call this council. We don't know the exact number of how many people were at the council. Somewhere between 220 and 300 bishops were present. Now, in some sources you'll read from historians, they'll say there is 318. That is not correct. That is actually just a transposition from Genesis 14, where Abram is going to go try to save Lot, and he gets together how many men? 318. So sometimes the Bible and, and things get mixed in church history. We don't know exactly how many were there, but somewhere between 220 and 300 bishops. Now, less than 10 of these bishops were from the western part of the empire, okay? So this is very much of an eastern council. We'll talk more about that later on when we talk about eastern orthodoxy. St. Nicholas did not punch Arius in the face. Okay, <clears throat> I need to unpack this. There's a myth that comes out every Christmas time, and I wish it was true I so badly want it to be true. And here's the myth, that St. Nicholas, you know, you know that guy, he's jolly, he wears a red suit, that St. Nicholas, who is an actual person, an actual bishop, that he was at the Council of Nicaea, and at some point, he got so mad at Arius that he went up and he punched him in the ear. I don't know if you've ever heard this rumor. Every time around Christmas time on evangelical Twitter and evangelical Facebook and evangelical Instagram, which are the worst things in the world, People will put up these memes of St. Nicholas, and it will say things like this. He knows if you've been naughty. He knows if you've been nice. He knows if you've denied the deity of the Son. Or it will say things like this. It will have a picture of St. Nicholas, and it will say, I've come to give presents and punch heretics, and I'm all out of presents. Right? It'll say these funny things. I was actually going to put some of them in your notes, but I'd already printed your notes. Okay? That did not happen. We don't even have a record of him attending the Council of Nicaea, and he did not punch Arius in the face. But I want that story to be true. How much more does that, that make you not want to get coal, okay? Contrary to the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, the Council of Nicaea did not determine which books got to be in the Bible. In fact, the council didn't decide the canon of Scripture at all. To quote Bart Ehrman, who's certainly no friend of the faith, he says, to do early church history by looking at the Da Vinci Code is like trying to do English history by looking at Monty Python, okay? 
So the Da Vinci Code is not good when it comes to uh, knowing anything going on in the early church, because it's not meant to be. It's meant to be a, a conspiracy theory on the same level as those that are flat earthers and such. Now listen to this next point. This is really important. <clears throat> Athanasius was not allowed to sit on the council since he was just an archdeacon and not a bishop. His views had to be promoted by Alexander of Alexandria. Arius was not allowed to sit on the council since he was just an elder and not a bishop. His views had to be promoted by his friend Eusebius of Nicomedia, the guy who ended up baptizing Constantine, by the way. So really, the debate is between Alexander of Alexandria, backed by Athanasius, and Eusebius of Nicomedia, backed by Arius, okay? A lot of people don't... When I say that it's Athanasius versus Arius, they're not actually on the council, they're not bishops. You have to be a bishop to be on this bishop's council. Rather, they have their mouthpiece, though. They have the person that is representing their position, and they're kind of, you know, helping them defend and make this case. A lot of pastors, even some church historians, get this wrong. It's not that Arius and Athanasius are yelling at each other or something like that. These other guys are supporting their positions to the council. So if, if you're confused by the names, it's Alexander, backed by Athanasius, good. And then you have Eusebius, or Eusebius, some people call him, of Nicomedia, backed by Arius. Boo, boo, Arius, he's the worst. Arius is the worst, guys. He's the, he's the guy that makes you late to the party because you have to stop and pick up his asthma medicine. That's who Arius is. He's the guy that takes off his shoes on a crowded airplane. That's Arius. He's the worst, okay? In addition to discussing the deity of the Son, the council also discussed issues such as readmitting those who had lapsed during persecution, the ordination of bishops and presbyters, and listen to this, they said that anyone who had castrated themselves due to extreme asceticism were, were to lose their church office. So there was this thing where a lot of people were doing, Origen himself did this, where people would castrate themselves to try to make themselves like eunuchs so it's easier to enter the kingdom of God. And the council said, stop that stuff. Stop all that. No, that's not what we mean, okay? Stop castrating yourself. If you do, you're gonna lose your church office, which I think is a, uh, just a good rule generally. The Arians thought that the council would side with them. So they're the people that show up to the party. They're very confident. They're ve they show up to the debate, and they're very confident that everybody's going to agree with them. But when Eusebius explained the Arian position, it was so offensive that some of his own followers turned against him. His opponents started yelling him down and even took his notes, ripped them out of his hand, tore them up, threw them down, and stomped on them in front of everybody, which is awesome, okay? Which is all his own friends. Like, they're all there, and they're like, yeah, we love, we love this position, and Eusebius is like, the son is created and he's less than the father. And they're like, no, I don't, I don't think I actually hold that. To the point where people are eventually yelling at uh, you know, Eusebius and ripping up his notes, which is awesome, okay? The decision of the council was controversial. Now, I say this because we as conservatives, we as Orthodox Christians have a tendency just to think the council of Nicaea happened and then there were no more problems. There were a bunch of problems and even at the council, once it was done, it was still very controversial especially the term homoousios. It was accepted by those in the West and was congenial to Tertullian, who had said that there's one God and three persons. And it was congenial to the views of some of the Antiochians, meaning people from Antioch. But many in the East, following Origen, were afraid that the term might lead to modalism. You don't have to remember all these fancy terms. We're gonna go over some of these in a second. The point being is, the council says, okay, we agree that Jesus is homoousios, but were concerned that someone might then think, not that the Son is God, but that the Son is the Father, and we don't want that. So because of that, it leads to a lot of hesitation. Arianism actually became extremely widespread after the council. For the next 60 to 80 years, 
Arianism reigns. Arianism spreads like a wildfire. So the council comes down on the right position, but for the next 60 to 80 years, until you get later councils, until you get the Cappadocian fathers, Arianism is gonna be extremely, extremely widespread. In addition to that, you get this other guy, Macedonius in 342, who was a bishop in Constantinople. He led a party that explicitly denied the deity, not just of the Son, but of the Holy Spirit. You just have people denying stuff all over the place. Arius is denying the Son, and Macedonius is denying the Spirit. His group was called by its opponents the Pneumatici, the Spirit Fighters, okay? The Spirit Fighters, because they were denying the deity of the, uh, the Spirit. Nicene Orthodoxy wasn't finally victorious until the great Cappadocian fathers defended it until it became clear at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Arianism would continue to be a bane to the church from then on out. Arianism has never died. It's around today. It's around today in evangelical churches. I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, was it Ligonier that did a study last year of evangelicals where they quizzed a bunch and something like 40% of evangelicals thought that the sun was created? What is happening? The whole world has, again, fallen into Arianism, apparently, okay? And so this uh, is, a, is a heresy that has never died out. Okay, that's the history. That's just kind of a brief history of the council. Now let's talk about the actual creeds that they come up with, and let's talk about what we should believe about the Trinity, okay? When we get into this, I'm going to give you a basic intro to the Trinity, and then, because y'all are Parkway and you love the good stuff, I'm going to give you an advanced introduction to the Trinity. So you can have both. You can listen to some and just check out and say, that's good enough for me. Or you can say, no, I want to really go deep. I want to impress my friends, right? I want to use words like consubstantiality on Twitter, okay? So let's talk about the Nicene Creed. First of all, another common misconception. The Nicene Creed that we read today is not from 325, not at the Council of Nicaea. It's from the Council of Constantinople. In fact, it's called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Sounds like that ice cream you get, which is one ice cream in three flavors. Kidding, that's a heresy. That's heresy. That's not the Trinity, okay? It's not the Trinity. Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. When we say Nicene Creed, we're actually meaning something from later on in, in, in 381 after the church clarifies it more. The creed that they come up with in 325 is called the Creed of Nicaea. So Creed of Nicaea equals 325. The Nicene Creed, also called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, is of 381. Okay? Now, I want you to see this icon, though. This is a very famous icon, and it depicts Constantine. Guess which one he is? The one with the crown, right? He's the emperor, and he's got his, uh, not what the Romans would carry, just a boculum, or a boculus, just a stick. He has a cross, and he's surrounded by the bishops at the Council of Nicaea, but what they're holding is actually the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381. So, if that's confusing, clear your mind. Let's look at both of these creeds. We're going to look at the Creed of Nicaea first with the condemnations. And guess what? It's very much directed towards Arius. It's great. You ever had where someone's like, hey, who left the door open? And you do this with your finger, you're like, I don't know. And you kind of point to him. That's what the Creed of Nicaea is going to do with Arius. It's going to say, he did it. That's the bad guy. Okay, here it is. <clears throat> we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. We'll talk about begottenness in a second, what that means. It doesn't mean created. Of one substance, there's the phrase, homoousios, with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven and things on earth. 
who because of us men and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate and became man and suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended to the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead. Look at this next phrase. And in the Holy Spirit. That's it. Okay? The Holy Spirit is also co-equal and co-eternal. The church will work more of that out later. But right now he's just, sometimes, so you need to understand, Father, Son, and Spirit deserve equal worship. They're all equally God. They're all equally eternal. Don't treat the Holy Spirit like the red-headed stepchild of the Trinity, okay? He too is co-equal and co-eternal. But as for those, here's the condemnation. So they're like, this is what we believe in. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit, amen. And then they're like, just to make it clear that we really hate Arius, okay? But as for those who say there was when he was not, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is of a different substance or essence or created or is subject to alteration or change, these the Catholic and apostolic church anathematizes, means damns. So they basically just take all these views and they're like, okay, that's what we hold. Now, if you say A, B, C, D, E, whatever about God, you're going to hell. That's what they're saying, okay? It's very clear. It's excellent. Now, let's look at the Nicene Creed. This is, again, the longer one. This is actually what we mean when we say Nicene Creed from 381. Very similar language, although some things have been elaborated on. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Now we get some elaboration. The Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That phrase and the Son will be added later. I think it's correct. We'll get to that when we talk about Eastern Orthodoxy. Who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life and the world to come. Amen. Amen. Okay? Now we're doing deep theology. Let me explain a helpful analogy of what this text means when it says Jesus is begotten. That phrase throws everybody off. Remember, when we're talking about the Trinity, do not think of it like humans. Do not think of it like creation. When I think of my son being begotten, he was made. He was brought into being. That's not what the church means by saying that Jesus is begotten because they'll say he's eternally begotten. Here's what they mean by that. And Athanasius gives a very helpful illustration, okay? Here's the illustration Athanasius gives. He says, imagine that you have water in a well, okay? You have water in a well. It's just in the well. It just starts in the well. The water is in the well. And the water overflows onto the ground, okay? The water that's on the ground is the same as the water that's in the well. Same water. There's only one water, okay? There's only one water. And now Athanasius says, he says, now imagine that there's no flow because Jesus is eternal. It's not like you have a well and then Jesus. He says, you just turn, you see a well, water on the ground, the same water that's in the well. What is it that makes the water on the ground different than the water in the well? Do you know what it is? There is a fromness to the water on the ground. There's a fromness to the water on the ground. Same water, same eternal. There's no flow. But the difference is that the Father is eternally of himself, whereas the Son is eternally of the Father. 
That's what the church means by eternal begottenness. Here's all they're trying to do. They're trying to say, Jesus is eternal. Same eternal as the Father, but there has to be something that makes him son. What is it that makes him son? A relation of origin, a fromness, that he is eternally in the relationship of son to the Father, okay? Now, let's unpack Orthodox Trinitarianism. Are you ready? Are you excited? Do we need to stand up and do some calisthenics? Get your brain going, okay? You might have to listen to this lecture more than once. I realize these are very uh, obscure, you know, esoteric, which itself is an esoteric term, uh, theological terms. And so if you have to listen to this again, that's okay. The the goal again is not this. It's not as though you're gonna go out today, get hit by a car, and you go to hell because you didn't have all the right words, okay? That's not how heresy, heresy is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of going to someone and saying, you believe something that's false, and they say, I don't care. I still believe it. That's the problem. Heresy is not a matter of the intellect. God does not demand that you be smart to be saved. So let me give you just the basic thing you need to know about the Trinity, and then we'll talk about it in a more advanced way. Does that sound good? Okay. Here's all you need to know. If you're like, Zach, my mind is full. I'm frustrated. Here's all you need to affirm. There is one and only one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. Each person is truly and fully God. That's it. These are all things that the Bible teaches. You don't even have to know any of the fancy words. The Bible simply teaches there is one and only one God. It says that like a billion times. And yet somehow, Jesus is that one God. And somehow the Spirit is that one God. And yet they're distinct from each other. The Father's not the Son, and the Son is not the... The Father didn't die on the cross for you, and it was the Spirit that was given at Pentecost. And so all they're trying to do is just say what the Bible says. There's only one God, somehow he's three persons, and each person is fully and truly God. That's it. This is why all analogies of the Trinity break down. God is unlike everything else. So when someone says God is like an egg, you have a shell, a yolk, and a white part, no. Jesus is not just a shell of God. He's not just a third of God. He's God. This is why Augustine will say one member of the Trinity is just as glorious as all the members put together, okay? Uh, God is like, uh, you know, water, where it can be water or ice or steam. No, that would just be one person in different modes. Uh, God is like, you know, a three-leaf clover. No, again, you're in partialism again, or whatever it is, okay? There are no analogies of the Trinity because there's nothing that's like God. So when parents ask me, Zach, how do I explain the Trinity Trinity to my kids? You don't. You leave the mystery there, you let them always be wrestling with it for the rest of their life. And every time they come to the point where they say, I just don't get it, that's the point. You're not supposed to get it. If you knew God, if you knew everything about God, you would be God. If you knew God like God knows God, you would be God, but you're not. So I'm gonna give you a helpful diagram that's still misleading, that's still misleading. It's not even great, but I'll give it to you because I do think it's helpful to see. It's used a lot. And check it out, we're using this whiteboard. Whoa, when people think technology, they think the Parkway Church, okay? (laughs) That's what they think, okay. So this is a helpful diagram that sometimes people use where it's just trying to affirm things the Bible says about the Trinity. So here you have the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, Holy Spirit, that's what HS is. But the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Son is not the Father. That's a helpful analogy. Now, there's two problems with this, okay? First of all, this makes it look like there's four things, Father, Son, Spirit, and God, okay? That's a problem with this imagery. Remember, the God, the one God of the Bible just is triune. Additionally, it still makes the Father look better than the other ones because he's at the top of the triangle, okay? So there's some problems even with this analogy, but it's just how, if you're just barely hanging on and you're getting frustrated, it's a helpful reference point, 
Okay? It's a helpful reference point. Now, that's basic trinity. So here's your conclusion. There is one and only one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. So you're free to check out and play Angry Birds on your phone if you're done. For the rest of us, we're gonna do a little more advanced Trinitarianism. We're gonna talk a little bit more about what these terms do and don't mean. You ready? Let's talk about what we mean by substance and what we mean by person. First of all, when we say that there is only one God or only one substance, you can use a bunch of terms for this. They all essentially mean the same thing, especially today. It's right to say that God is one God. Latin would be Deus or Greek would be Theos. One nature, Natura in Latin. One being, Usia in Greek. One substance, again in Latin, substantia. Or one essence, again in Latin, essentia. I don't care what term you mean. Here's simply what we're trying to say. There is one and only one being in the entire universe that is God. There are not two gods. There are not three gods. There's not one and a half gods, okay? Jesus is not God Jr. He's God. What I'm trying to say is there is just one God. This term substance comes from Greek philosophy, and here's what the term means, individual thing. I realize God's not a thing, he's personal, but go with me for a second. The term substance, as it's used in Greek philosophy, means individual thing. That's what it means. Don't think of what we think of as a substance. When we think of a substance, we think of like Play-Doh, out of which you can make several things. Or we think of milk as a substance for ice cream or for butter or for cheese or basically anything that tastes good, right? We have a tendency to think of substance as this like, this ethereal flux, this matter that you push together. Or something. That's not what it means for the early church. Substance means individual thing. So if, so I've used this analogy before in talking about God and I've repented of it because it's wrong. You cannot say that the Trinity is like a husband and a wife. They're the same substance, but they have different jobs. That would be two substances. If there are two humans, that's two substances. Remember, substance in the early church and in Greek philosophy means individual thing, okay? If me and one of, somebody else in here stands up on stage, there are two substances. God is only one substance. God doesn't have genus and species like we do. There is one and only one thing that is God. Additionally, okay, keep this in mind. The West, late Westminster theologian, Cornelius Van Til, used to say this about the Trinity. He would say, God is three persons and God is one person. Now, he wasn't being a heretic. He wasn't saying he literally held that. He used to tell his students that because they have a tendency not to realize that the oneness of God is personal. God only has one mind, he does not have three minds. He does not have three centers of consciousness. Do not think of a big circle and that's God with three guys sitting in it or something like that. God has one mind and only one mind. He has one will and only one will. He has one love and only one love. Whatever the members of the Trinity have in common, that is one and the same, okay? That's what we mean by one substance. So all I'm trying to say is there is one and only one thing that is God and that God, that one is personal. One mind, one will. One love, one being, one essence, one nature, one. That's what we mean by substance, okay? Substance is what the Trinity, the members of the Trinity have in common. That's common predication. Not particular or personal predication. Common predication is what the members of the Trinity have in common. Everybody good? Nobody in here a polytheist? Excellent. There's a Hindu temple down the street if you'd like to consider polytheism. That's not our brand, okay? It's not our brand. Now let's talk about person. What do we mean to say that God is three persons? Again, the approved terms, if you want to be really technical, it's right to say that God is three hypostases, Greek hypostasis, or three persons, Latin personae, okay? That God is three persons or uh, three hypostases. This is what makes the members of the Trinity distinct, 
Okay, so let, let's do a little quiz before I explain what person does and doesn't mean. What did I say that it meant to say that God is one substance? What does substance mean? Individual being, okay? Individual being is exactly what substance means. Now, let me be clear on what I mean by person, okay? We don't mean that God is three people. When you have a tendency to think of people, you think of three distinct minds, three distinct centers of consciousness. That's not what we mean. We don't mean what I've seen in a lot of statements of faith by even churches here in McKinney that God is three personalities. For some reason, they think that they're gonna just improve on what the church has said. God does not have multiple personality disorder, nor is he schizophrenic, okay? God has no mental illnesses, just throwing that out there. So God does not have three personalities. We don't say person doesn't mean personalities or something like that. Here is what person means, if I can make it as clear as I can. It's still vague. It's what makes the members of the Trinity different. That's really what the term means. So let me ask the question this way. What is it that makes the members of the Trinity different? People give a lot of bad answers to this. Some would say that some of them have attributes that the other ones don't have. That is denying Nicaea. The Father cannot have more strength than the Son. If they have strength, they have the same amount of strength because there's only one God. The Father cannot have more authority than the Son or else he is a different substance. Anything that they share at all, they share to the same degree, okay? So it can't be the Father's not older than the Son. The Father's not stronger than the Son. He's not wiser than the Son. Co-equal, co-eternal. If it deals with something they share, they have it to the same degree. So that's not the right answer. What is it that makes the members of the Trinity different? Some have said it's their job. It's their function. But the early church condemned that. Here's why. What makes the members of the Trinity different has to be actual and not just functional. It has to be something that they are and not something that they do. If what makes them different is just their function or their job, one, they don't have a bunch of different jobs before creation. The sun isn't coming down and dying on the cross until after creation or the spirit being given till Pentecost after creation. But two, and more importantly, a modalist affirmed that the father can have a different job than when he's playing the role of the son, can have a different job than when he's playing the role of the spirit. If you think the only thing that makes the members of the Trinity different are their function or their job, you're a modalist. Their difference has to be actual something about them, not just about what they do. It has to be real, not merely something that's played out. Additionally, by saying what makes the members of the Trinity different, we don't just mean that they have different names. It's not just that we call one father and we call one son and we call one spirit. That would also not be correct. If there's no actual difference and you're just calling them different things, then there's no difference. There's no distinction between the members of the Trinity. You're just changing the words that you use. So what the early church means by person is simply this, okay? The father has something about him that's father that the son and the spirit don't have. The son has something about him that's son that the father and the spirit don't have. The spirit has something about him that is spirit that the father and the son don't have. Augustine would say, even if we don't know what these terms mean, we're just saying something so we don't have to say nothing. We're trying to simply say there is a real distinction between the members of the Trinity. And what is that distinction? It is their relation of origin. Though they're all equally eternal, the Father is eternally unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten, and the Spirit is eternally spirated. He has passive spiration. What the church is trying to do by all these fancy technical terms is simply do this. You can't just say the Son is eternal because then what would make him the Son? Why wouldn't you just have three fathers? You have, he has to have a fromness from the Father to be Son. And what makes the spirit? Spirit. Well, the word spirit in Hebrew, ruach, or in uh, Greek, pneuma, which is where we get the word like pneumonia, hashtag COVID-19. These words mean breathed or breath or life. So the idea is almost as if the father is speaking out the word and as he's doing so, he's breathing out the spirit. Now again, eternally, 
It's not as though that uh, they haven't always existed, haven't always been breathed out, haven't always been uh, eternally begotten. That's all the church is trying to do. Now, I told you, it's a little bit advanced. So here's all you have to remember. You're like, Zach, okay. I don't know what all those terms mean, like spiration. So all you have to remember, one God, three persons. Each person is truly and fully God. And here's the thing. What makes the members of the Trinity distinct is that the Father is the Father, eternally unbegotten. The Son is the Son, eternally begotten, and the Spirit is the Spirit, eternally spirated, eternally breathed out, if you want to say it that way. What we're trying to simply do is say, we have to hang on to the oneness of God, and we have to hang on to the distinction between the members of the Trinity, and the distinction has to be real, but it cannot affect the oneness. It cannot affect the oneness. Well, let's talk about the importance of this council, and then we will have our very own Jared Lawson, our patristics expert, if you will, come up and, uh, he actually did specialize in patristics, come up and answer some questions with us. Let's talk about the importance of this council. One, it was the first ecumenical council that would become binding on all churches, okay? This would be the first ecumenical council outside of the Bible that would be binding on all the churches, and it would set a precedent for when there is a major theological dispute, the church would get together and they would hammer it out with creeds and confessions, Another important thing that comes from the council, which again, is already in the Bible. Let me, let me just clarify this real quick. The council of Nicaea did not declare and make Jesus God. Jesus has always been God and the Bible teaches that. What the council is doing is they're saying that's what the Bible teaches. Let me say this stronger for you because we're Protestants here. The council's authority is not in the council. The council's authority is in scripture. Everything that they're getting about God, they're getting from the Bible and to the degree that they get it right, they're right. Jesus is just as much the one God as the Father is. That's, again, an important thing to come out of the council. Here's another important thing. We can use language that is not in the Bible to clarify the Bible. It was Arius who was actually being kind of anti-intellectual. He was saying, we can't use words like homoousios. That's not in the Bible. And the church had to say, I know that, but we're both quoting from the Bible. Now, how do we know who's right? It's okay to use words that are not in the Bible to clarify what the Bible means. Jeff has an excellent phrase where he says that what these theological terms do is they give grammar to our groanings. We know that there's only one God, and we, but we also know somehow we should worship Christ in the Spirit, and we don't have a term. So let's come up with a term that encapsulates both of those, okay? That encapsulates, but it gives grammar to our groanings. All forms of polytheism are false. Again, that should be a given for Christians, but there you go. We can, I love this one personally, we can and must use philosophy to understand our faith. There is no not doing philosophy. As soon as you're thinking about anything, you're doing philosophy, okay? The question is, are you a good or bad philosopher? Just like every time you're thinking about God, you're being a theologian. There's no not being a theologian. The question is, are you a good theologian or a bad theologian, okay? So we can and must even use consistency, logic, philosophical terms to explain our faith. Another importance of the council, but in a negative way, it linked the church to the state in a way that could be problematic, that you will have from then on out emperors or leaders calling different councils to try to push political agendas. That's, that's a bad thing that comes from the council. It enshrined the importance of universal doctrine for the church. It set a pattern of universal excommunication, heresy, and anathemas. And it set a pattern of who is and who is not orthodox. One of the benefits coming from this council is from then on out, people would be able to say, do you agree with a Nicene definition of the Trinity? Do you agree with a Nicene definition of the deity of Christ? It's it's quality control. The church can now be like a franchise that you can visit each one to make sure that they're keeping those cleanliness standards up to to where they're supposed to be and they're doing all of that. When you have a franchise, 
Everyone's a little different, but they still have to have certain things that are the same. You can't be a Chili's and not serve boneless buffalo wings, right? There's a benefit to having the Council of Nicaea and then later on the the Nicene Creed so that you can go to any church and say, do you hold this? And if they say no, they're not part of Jesus's franchise. They're not part of something that belongs to him. They're part of what the Bible calls synagogue of Satan and not actually part of Christ's bride. So let me pray. And then we will untangle all the mysteries you have uh, about the Trinity. Uh, Keeping in mind Augustine's famous phrase that if you try to, you know, understand the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. You try to deny it, you'll lose your soul. So let's pray. And then we will uh, do some Q&A. Father, Son, and Spirit, we confess you are the one God, one being, one essence, one mind, one will, and yet three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you've been that way for all eternity. We thank you, Father, for sending the Son. Son, we thank you for coming down, taking on flesh, taking on a second nature, humanity, taking on a second will and a second mind and a second, uh, you know, nature so that we might be redeemed. Spirit, we thank you for indwelling our hearts, redeeming us, enlivening our Uh, us spiritually, regenerating us, convicting us of sin, sanctifying us. You do that work, not us. We love you and thank you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.